Hi everyone, you are listening to the Accents podcast on WUKY. I am your host, Katerina Stojkova, and in the studio with me is author and speaker Marta Miranda Strobe. Hi Marta, how are you? Oh, I am well. Thank you so much for inviting me. So good to see you and really excited about being here with you. You call yourself a Cuba Latin. Yes. Tell us more. Right. Um, well, I was born in rural area of Cuba, and uh, my parents and I and my brother immigrated in 1966 to New Jersey. Um, so that was nothing like what we grew up with. And then I went up to Florida for uh, doing my master's and my doctorate. And uh, I was on my way to Michigan to present a paper on comparing the women's movement under the revolution to the uh, to the movement here in the United States, the feminist movement. Uh, and it was called Revolutionary or Feminist uh, was the title. And on my way to Michigan University, I passed through Tennessee and Kentucky and to see a friend of mine who was at UK medical school. And I fell in love with these mountains, fell in love with these people. For the first time in my exile, I felt like I was home. I closed my practice and I moved and got a 14 acres of wood and a log cabin in a holler, uh, a little 15 minutes south of Berea, and I uh, found my rural roots there and my people for the first time in my exile. So I identify as Cuban by birth and Appalachian by the grace of God. Wow, Marta, that moves me to tears because I know exactly what you mean. I mean, after 11 years mm. or so in the United States, when I moved to Kentucky, then mm. I was, okay, I feel home. Right, And right. The, the thing is that you don't allow yourself to feel that you're missing something until it actually is presented to you, and, and then you're like, I'm not going to let that go. <laughs> and what you described is the same thing, that you wow. made drastic changes right, to your life. Right, because you're home. You're home. Yeah. This was home. Log cabin. Log cabin, 14 acres of wood, Did in a holler, in a little town called Disputanta between Mount Vernon and Berea. And I was there for 20 years. I know exactly where Disputanta is. <laughs> Tell us about the name. Why is it called Disputanta? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Most people don't even know. Uh, well, the, the story is that there was a woman named um, Anna. And Anna disputed everything whenever they met to make decisions about the town. So they decided to name the town Disputanta after her. She was a troublemaker, wasn't she? She was, she really made good and bad trouble. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I was, I was landed in the right place, found two therapists in Berea and relaunched my private practice and started to teach part-time at EKU where I later became a full professor and chair of women and gender studies, teaching kids, first-generation college students like I am. So it just fed my heart on so, so many levels. Talk to us about your private practice. My private practice? I had a private practice for 35 years, and I dealt with uh, trauma, you know, from child abuse to sexual abuse and domestic violence, um, as well as... Um, addictions and mental health issues. I worked a lot with professionals who were impaired, uh, folks who 
got in trouble due to boundary violations or addictions or fraud. So I got to work with those folks who are really very committed and uh, kind of did not take care of themselves and be engaged in unethical practice. Um, and their boards would refer them to me uh, to do work to see whether they can get their licenses back. So I did that as well with uh, a lot of folks who were trying to get clean and sober and uh, were really struggling because memories of child abuse will come up when they stop using. Um, so did that work and then work with perpetrators of domestic violence as well as with victims of domestic violence. I believe you have to work with both the victim and the perpetrator. Uh, I did that work, um, really, uh, really, really changed my life to have an honor seat on um, people's struggle and their psyche. Uh, there was a lot of dissociative disorders. People had such severe child abuse that they divided their psyche up so that they can contain the memories. And little by little, we pieced them together and had round tables and UN meetings with all that they were until they were able to claim their families and integrate and, and, and themselves. So I really have had an incredible honor to be present in the darkest moments of people's lives, to, to witness the abuse of humanity and to witness the resilience and creativity of our brain and our heart and our soul who continues to say yes to life. Um, and then with addictions, you know, people really struggling with how to live a life uh, without substances and, and reimagine their lives differently and rebuild families and rebuild lives. So um, really, uh, I really consider it one of the greatest gifts of my life is to have had 35 years doing that work with incredibly courageous, resilient, creative people uh, who really painted painted new colors, and uh, I always said, we have to find the skeletons, we have to beat them, we have to put glitter on them, and then you gotta celebrate them, because they kept you alive. So, uh, very, very honored to have done that work for 35 years. Was it easier to work with victims or perpetrators? Well, uh, 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 a lot easier to work uh, with perpetrators. Really? Yes, because I know what I got. Uh, I know that there's young damage. I know that some of them have disorders, uh, that uh, personality disorders, where they really are so absorbed in their power and control. So as a feminist, as a, I think it was really, really important to walk into that toxic masculinity space with primarily men. Um, who really felt uh, that they were not doing anything wrong and that they were entitled and minimized the abuse. And uh, at one point, some of them, if they were gonna stop battering, would find that wounded kid who watched the father beat the mother and who aligned with a perpetrator because that's where the power was and continue to reenact that. And then once they got there, then, then we were home to then begin to shift and change. And some folks never got there. So it was a lot easier for me to sit with that and with them uh, than it was to sit with a victim because the victim usually was abused as a child, uh, had trauma from childhood, uh, the self-esteem was non-existent, 
And even those who were successful, like I had victims who ran a bank or were a physician or were a professor or a, a nurse, uh, inside uh, they did not feel worthy or they were so invested in changing the person and believing that they could and also believing all the stories and lies that they were told. Um, and because I knew there were a risk of being killed and they would often go back when uh, they promised to change or when their finances didn't let them be independent or when their kids missed their dad. Uh, so really that cycle and that, that sitting on the edge of a homicide waiting to happen uh, was really grueling and probably one of the most difficult jobs I've ever done. I would say that empowering the victim and having compassion for the perpetrator, these are kind of superhuman uh, efforts. Well, I believe that we are all capable of beautiful, compassionate things, and that all of us are capable of horrific, atrocious, and violent things. So within us, we have both the victim and the perpetrator. And I need to watch mine uh, on both sides. And doing that work really helped me stay, follow the course that I, I needed to guide and I needed to uh, provide support uh, and sit with uh, horrific uh, information and uh, violence and bring the potential of uh, change and creating a different life, which was beautiful. Uh, and realizing that uh, I got to sit with the best and the worst of humanity. Um, and uh, not many say they have a life where they got that permission to have an honor seat on people's lives. So for me, it, it, all the skills I learned, all the studies, all the degree, all, all of my own therapy, all of my own clinical supervision uh, really guided me to do that work. And uh, it is, I'm very proud uh, of that work. And you did that for 35 years. And what about now, post those years? Oh, I, I closed my clinical practice uh, 15 years, 20, 15 years ago. So um, I was at EKU for Eastern Kentucky University for 20 years. I chaired women and gender studies there. I was the chair of multicultural student affairs there. I taught in the social work, uh, sociology and anthropology program there. Uh, did a lot like the vagina monologues and did a lot of activism around rape and sexual assault and campus, uh, campus violence as well. Uh, did a lot of work with the Bluegrass Rape Crisis Center uh, and did a lot of work there as a therapist as well. Uh, then uh, I had five years at EKU as a professor and the only thing that was left to do was to become a dean, put a fork in my eye, that wasn't me. So a job came uh, in Louisville uh, to be the CEO, which I call the Chief Empowerment Officer for the Center for Women and Families, who is a domestic violence and sexual assault uh, organization in Indiana and Kentucky and I applied and I got it and I did that for seven years and retired and went ahead and wrote my memoir created by skeletons started consulting have a consulting practice now that I started then uh, called catapulting now where I do organizational development strategic planning leadership development a lot of DNI and cultural belonging work uh, how to raise funds in a sustainable way, that kind of way. way. And uh, then COVID came and the governor called 
So I became the commissioner, the social services commissioner, Department of Community-Based Service for the state of Kentucky. Uh, and like my husband looked at me, he said, okay, honey, I'll support anything you do, but could you tell me what the hell does a commissioner do? And I said, well, hell, I'm the social worker for the state. And he goes, oh my God. So during COVID, during floods, during tornadoes, during an incredibly malicious legislature, I was able to be the advocate in the face of the clients we served, which are people who are below the poverty level, children who need lunch, uh, school lunches, people who need help with their utilities, human trafficking, uh, elder abuse, child abuse, foster care, uh, just the, the largest uh, program in the state for social services. And my staff had not gotten a raise in 20 years. Uh, so we were facing, I was about to have about 4,500 staff and a $1 billion budget. I had 500 staff vacancies and a high turnover. I don't blame them. That job is really undoable and unrealistic. So I advocated to be able to get them raised, the first raise and the face first pay equity in 20 years for those. And uh, uh, when I left, they, they, there's two things that I always say at the cabinet, they call it martyrism, is sort of like one, no means not yet unless it's sexual consent. So just because you can know 17 times that there's gonna be no races, on the 18th time we got it. And the other one is a vision without a plan is a hallucination. So great idea, but how the hell are we gonna do it? Uh, so I was able to do that. I gave the governor a year because I was already retired. I'm not a bureaucrat, uh, but I really, really value and believe in this man and his leadership and his love of this state and his capacity to help us. Um, of course, I stayed three because you cannot get anything done in a year in state government. But we established a division of prevention for the first time in the state of Kentucky. We have no vacancies in our department for the first time in 20 years. We have pay equity. We did a lot of equity work and and uh, a lot of work uh, on being able to empower staff and clients, bring clients in as a voice, as trusted advisors to work with my staff. Um, so I feel really proud of that work and really proud of that governor. Really glad I did it. It took everything I had left and really glad it's done. So I retired for the second time and in February of 2023, took about six weeks off to find my balance and recalibrate, kicked off my consulting practice again, catapulting now, and began to write again. So now what I do is a very bougie schedule. I consult three days a week. I'm the consultant in residence at the Muhammad Ali Center now. Love working there, working in Ali's office, helping that organization really, really thrive and pivot. Um, and then I write two days a week, which is pretty amazing, and working on three pieces of writing and traveling to D.C. now to work with an organization, do a summit, facilitate a summit for a D.C. organization, going to California after that. So I get to stay at beautiful Airbnbs. I get to meet people all over the country, and I get to sit and write and edit and uh, do poetry uh, with my, my naked poets and my Afro-Latin poets. Um, we're going to be in Kansas, Missouri with uh, Frank X and Crystal Wilkinson and Ricardo Nazario Colon and Amy Alvarez at the uh, Appalachian Writers Conference. And we're going to present on the Appalachian Poets. So I'm not only alive, I'm not only 69 years old, but I am living the best life yet. 
That's amazing. It keeps on getting better. It does. It does. Yeah. And my vision with a plan is mermaid author on the beach. Aha. Uh-huh. So April 15th, I moved to the Gulf where I've been going for 31 years on retreat with a book, a journal, a yoga mat, no partner, nothing else for 31 years for the week of my birthday and dreamed that when I retired, I would move there. So I've been planning this for 31 years, and it's happening. On April 15 of this year, uh, we're moving there. You're moving to live there? Yes, permanently, on the Gulf. Wow. 10 minutes from the ocean, 20 minutes from the airport. So like I tell people, Marta, how can you leave? How do we? I say, listen, I'm only $200 away, two hours away from, from where I'm going to be. So I wanted to be 10 minutes from the ocean, and 20 minutes from the airport, and direct flights from Louisville to St. Pete, and I'll be here if you need me. And quite a few miles between you and the people with all the problems. Oh, my goodness. We probably need to do another podcast day. I always say I am from you, but I am not like you. I think the stork, uh, Clarissa Pincola Estes, you know, women who run with the wolves, love her, has this story that I really relate to. He said, you know, there was one, this egg that was so full of life and so ready to come and, and be life that she jumped way, she jumped and landed in the wrong house. And therefore, she always wondered, what am I doing here with all these people? And really her real family, kind of the artsy, progressive, hippie, queer folks, lived two blocks over, but I missed them because I got out of the stork's uh, pouch too early. And I've been wondering all along, what the hell am I doing here with these people? So uh, that happens today with Miami Cubans and uh, who I am and what I believe and what I value is very different. Um, and uh, I'm really proud that I can love and respect, but that I am, um, I am not your traditional Cuban, and I really, really honor that. Being minority within the minority within the minority. Right. Wow. Yeah. And yet, the way that I describe you is larger than life. Mm. So how do you manage to have your life experiences extend rather than contract you? Asking for a friend. Yeah, asking for a friend. Uh, Well, you know, one of my greatest gifts is that I have an inner compass that is incredibly attuned to my values and my purpose of what I'm doing here. So I always can rely on that to make the right decision to manage the micro and macro aggressions that are thrown on our psyches daily, to be able to be, to channel my rage uh, and disappointment into activism. I've been an activist, gender justice, anti-racism, queer civil rights, all of my life, uh, 45 years. I did the first uh, immigration advocacy for undocumented workers here in Lexington, Kentucky, when there wasn't a service where people were hiding uh, in the shadows uh, and where uh, government did not want to provide any services for people. And uh, I remember doing that work with a Hispanic association here. Um, I just met with a friend who did that work with me and, uh, you know, kind of that advocacy. So I'm always been a voice, uh, not for people who don't have voices, but for people who don't get access to the room. Somehow 
They have big voices. They have a lot to say. But for some reason, I'm a good code switcher. I look really good and sophisticated on the outside. And then I get in and I take out the switchblade from my sock. And I argue and I fight and I wrestle. And I do whatever it takes to get the job done and to bring the services and the voice that need to be at the table. So um, even even... As commissioner, who the hell, Marta Miranda as commissioner, they took vets that I was going to last three months because of how difficult that is. Uh, so, uh, you know, because the mission is to serve people in Kentucky who are in need, and the mission in Lexington was these are the folks that are manning our hotels and our Keeneland and our horse, horses and uh, our, our, you know, work that is uh, construction and doing all the work that nobody else wants to do. Um, and yet we don't value them. We don't respect them. We don't want to pay them. We don't want to provide social services for them. So I've been really blessed that uh, the people and the mission and the passion that I've had for my advocacy has always fed me more than I gave. So I'm not one of those activists who get bitter and say, why isn't everybody doing something? And I take care of myself. I call myself a self-care slut because uh, like Audrey Lorser says, when you're fighting forces in the society that want to deny you and go against everything you believe, self-care is not a luxury. It's a survival. And it's a necessity. So here I stand after 50 years. January 17 was my 50th year in the field. I've had every role possible in the world, uh, from therapist to commissioner to faculty to community organizer, all of that. Um, and I'm, I'm juicy. I'm alive. I'm creative. I'm excited. And I am such awe of what's going to come next now that I don't have the pressure of work now that I can write more, now that I can read more, now that I can uh, see what's next for, for me. Well, I happen to know one role that you didn't mention. What? Radio host. Oh, my goodness, that just happened today. Yes, I, I was just at, uh, Lex, uh, uh, at the Lexington station uh, with my dear friend Jacobo, and they asked me to have a show in Spanish. I think I'm going to call it the Cuban Hurricane. And we're going to um, we're going to talk about writing. We're going to talk about poetry. We're going to talk about politics. We're going to talk about finding your authentic voice, creating circles of support. And I am and I'm so excited. So thank you for bringing that up. That just happened like 20 minutes ago. And you said that you're working on three writing projects. I want to hear about them. Oh, thank you. Okay, so I have Cradle by Skeletons, uh, a uh, life in poems and essays, which was my first published book. And that's my memoir. And uh, I, it's, I write both in English and Spanish uh, at the same time. So when I translate the English to Spanish, it sounds like I got nothing to say. When I translate the Spanish to English, it sounds like I'm psychotic. So that takes an incredible amount of work to do. And then I have professional folks edit after I do that. The second book that I wrote is a children's book, illustrated children's book for my great niece. It's called Lullaby for Maddie. And it's really the story of her birth story. She was beautiful in the womb. She loved it. She didn't kick. She didn't scream. She was fine. And then she was born and she hated it. She screamed for three months straight. So I moved in with her mom and dad, uh, my nephew and his wife, to help them. And uh, uh, Maddie screamed all the time. 
So it's called Lullaby for Maddie, and I made her a mermaid who was in the womb, and putting, swimming with the dolphins, and putting, uh, you know, shells for pillows, and beautiful. And then she comes out to the earth, lands on the sand, and starts screaming because she hates it. Um, and, and it's the love of a very loving and warm Cuban family that makes her decide that maybe she's going to stay uh, a little while. So it's called Lullaby for Maddie. And then, so those are published and done. Um, the next one that I'm writing on that I'm really excited about, and uh, I should have brought it to read to you, is uh, it's a, a, another book of poetry, and it's called A Mermaid Stares at Seventy, Diving in the Margins. And the first poem... Love it. <laughs> the first poem is uh, Nevertheless She Persisted. Mm. Uh, so it's that. And then I, I have a whole section uh, uh, that's called Juicy as a part of that that has erotica poems because this old lady wants to demystify the fact that older people uh, stop having sex or stop being ex exciting or want that in their life. So I've been writing some really fun uh, fun erotica and I always read it to Carrie and if Carrie says damn baby damn then I know I got a good one and then it goes in the manuscript so that's one uh, a second one that I'm uh, working on is another children's story and it's for Maddie's brother little Michael who keeps asking me Tia where's mine because of course I did his sister and when little Mikey was little he would he hated to have his hair cut he would scream and try to get out. So his uh, father would call me and say, Tia, tell him a story so that we could don't cut this kid. So I would tell him about us getting stranded in Newark Airport without speaking English when we first came and my mom and dad working in factories and all of the snow being up to, we were in New Jersey, we went from Cuba to that. He would pay attention and they could cut his hair. So um, uh, the name of the book is called He Has Spirits in His Hair and it's tying in the DNA of the family and the power of the heritage of the ancestors. And the reason why he's screaming is because he doesn't want that cut. Uh. And uh, so that's the, he has spirits in his hair is, is, is the next children's book. So we got the poetry volume, I got the children's book. And then uh, this partner of mine who have done a lot of equity work together, Rashad Abdurrahman and I, I editing an HR manual for for-profit and non-profit organizations. It's called Leading in Color, Recruiting, Retaining, and Developing Leaders of Color, uh, which is really about the systemic transformation that it takes for an organization or a company to be able to not only attract, but be able to retain leaders of color. Both for-profit and non-profits have very few leaders of color, and there's tons of systemic and structural reasons for that. So we want to create a pretty thick volume with lots of folks from academia to private, uh, private for-profits to non-profits as to uh, what needs to happen in those areas. I did a podcast called Leading in Color where I interviewed pink, purple, and polka dot people uh, about what it was like for them to navigate systems of oppression uh, in their workplace. And I learned a lot from them, not only my experience, but theirs. Develop a training curriculum that's a year long called Leading in Color for Organizations. And I did that at Metro United Way. I'm getting ready to do that in California uh, so that people can look at their policy, their hiring practices, how we interview, uh, how do we do equity in the workplace? How do we create uh, cultures of belonging? So all of that wisdom is going to go into a, um, an, you know, kind of an edited version 
of a manual so people understand they, they can't just ask for having uh, D&I training. That doesn't work. All the research tells you that doesn't make any difference. Uh, really, you need to make an investment in uh, structural work and, and re redesigning how you go about doing your business. So three things. And I love that because I love all these projects, but when I sit down to write, right, when I have my writing practice, my sacred space, my sacred writing practice, my sacred writing time, I can pick for which one of these do I have the energy for. Right. So it's never I sit there and stare at a blank page. I don't do that. If I stare at a blank page, I read a poet. You know, I read... Uh, something. I look at a podcast of a writer, you know, so that you always keep those juices flowing. So that part of my life is really blossoming. Um, I perform with the Naked Poets in uh, Louisville a lot. The Naked Poets are two other uh, two other friends, Alitha Fields and uh, Cree Majesty and I are the Naked Poets. And we call ourselves the Naked Poets because uh, it's our authentic voice and our authentic view of society and values. And it's very fun, and we have a pretty wonderful following. Um, and then I'm a member of the Appalachian Poets. I was inducted in 2009 by the amazing Papa Frank X. Walker um, and really honored to be the baby poet in that group. What is family? Family? You? Family is everything. And I include in family my chosen family. Uh, I was raised by gay men, pretty much. That's where I was a young woman and learned a lot about, uh, about uh, oppression, learned a lot about uh, fun, learned a lot about music, learned a lot about art, uh, was able to hold, bathe, and bury uh, mostly men while I, I was in Key West during the AIDS epidemic as a result of that. Um, I consider those folks my friends, my family, my brothers, my sisters. I also became part of a of a, a community. I've always been very involved in community, and uh, and then there's my nuclear family, and I have to navigate that with incredible compassion, gentleness, and integrity, all at the same time, because really I don't agree with that compass that just. Right. S spoke about them. Right, ago. right. Yeah. I don't agree. Uh, however, there's an incredible amount of love and respect. Uh, but really, it's my chosen family who have raised me, supported me, uh, you know, and who have really given me permission to live a life that, um, you know, and I forget my recovery. I'm 42 years clean and sober. I'm a recovering drug addict and alcoholic. And I got clean at age 27. Um, and it's that recovery community who I belong to to today, not because I have an urge to use, I haven't, thank God, had that for a long time, but because I'm a better person. I'm able to pass it on to new people coming in. I'm able to get support. I'm able to be honest about what's really going on with me. So my recovering community is family as well. I'm a lucky woman, what can I tell you? So when you first came to the United States, what did you think of the food? Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, my first shock was snow. I mean, my brother and I kept thinking ice cubes were going to fall from the sky. Well, you knew about snow, surely. No, I didn't. I mean, I come from, I was a Guajirita in Pinar de Rio, a little hillbilly girl in the middle of the mountains in Cuba. I didn't know anything about snow. I really, we heard about snow, but 
all my brother and I had as an idea was that ice cubes were going to be falling from the sky. That's what we thought. Yeah, that's what we thought, right? We then learned hail, but we really thought ice cubes, really. Mm -hmm. We were young. Uh, I was 12 and he was five. Um, And then uh, the food, it was exciting to us, you know. I mean, we had banquets at my house. My father was a chef. He cooked. He made great food, right? And then we would go out, but we wanted a hamburger. We wanted a milkshake. We wanted to fit in with the kids at school. So French fries, hamburger, and uh, milkshakes were what we wanted to order. And uh, I remember the opening of the first Burger King in uh, in uh, Union, Union City, New Jersey, and we stood in line and brought my parents in so that we could do that. So for us, there was so much newness and the food was new. The fact that it was informal, the fact that you can eat it with your hands, the fact that you didn't have to sit at the table and use a fork, you know, that, that was exciting to us kids. So it, it, we liked it, we liked it. To me, the biggest shock was eating in my car. Ah, yes. I try not to do that to this day. Yeah, but people do. I don't like drive throughs I don't like buffets. I'm still pretty bougie when it comes to food. Uh, but I, you know, I remember as a kid being really excited about hot dogs. What are they? You know, we, we got, they would, in New Jersey, this is in New York too, they have these little carts where there's always uh, a cart with sauerkraut and mustard and steam with uh, the hot dogs in the middle. And my brother and I loved, loved, loved that. It was nothing like what we had or what we ate. Where can we find good Cuban sandwiches? Ah, I don't know where you can find good Cuban sandwiches in in Lexington. In Kentucky. Oh, in Kentucky. In Kentucky, there's a beautiful place called Havana Rumba. And Havana Rumba has a couple of places. Um, One is on Barstown Road. There's also one on Shelbyville Road. That's uh, Havana Rumba and uh, Mojitos together. Also, uh, they have the best Cuban sandwiches. When my Cuban family visits, I take them to those places because they can get the black beans, the pork chunks, the pork barbecue, the Cuban sandwiches, the flan, all of that stuff. And that way they don't feel like they left Miami. That's amazing. That's a raving endorsement oh, right oh, there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right there, yeah. right there. Uh, my uh, Louisville has a very large Cuban community. So, uh, you know, a lot of the folks come through Catholic charities, like my family and I did, and uh, they settle uh, in uh, you, they settled in Louisville. So we have a very large Cuban community there. So there's Cuban dances, there's Cuban food, uh, all kinds of stuff in, in Louisville. I think that it's pretty obvious by the questions, the kind of questions I'm asking, how much I admire you. Oh, Katarina. And so tell us how can we develop some of that compass, some of that internal compass that would flawlessly keep us pointed towards our truth. How do we do that? Well, I admire you very much, and I'm very honored that you've invited me to be here. I watch your career, I watch your life unfold and and grow, and the support that you give in the end in here, the Kentucky Humanities, and married uh, to this amazing man that I got to meet. So congratulations. Um, so I've watched you and been part of your story. Can't wait for March when I get the book that you wrote about how to write and how to get it published, all those things we've been asking you every time we take a workshop. Um, So what I want to say is be very clear about what are your top three core values. What are the, and this is the question I ask everybody, what are you willing to live and die for? 
And that will distill down to what those core values are. Then make sure that your work, your community uh, fits those values that is congruent, so that your life is congruent, so there doesn't have to be a, a private life and a public life. I am who I am no matter where I show up. And I don't have to worry, did I tell you this? Did you know that about me? That you know, I'm the rainbow chief in my family. Everybody knows that. Uh, you know, I have very, I, I even put on Facebook the other day, I have a mug that says, kiss my liberal ass, because I'm tired of trying to convince people who have not taken their meds that there's something really wrong with this human being and that, you know, they're really taking the Kool-Aid. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm tired of that. I'm, I'm 69 years old. I'm done. And I don't have donors. I don't have legislature. I don't have the governor's career to worry about. I don't have uh, clients, the reputation I need to worry about. So I'm freer than I've ever been. But I've never not been free. Uh, if their job or the relationship required that Marta not be Marta, Marta cried and left. Uh, so don't settle for what is not right for you. Uh, don't try to bend yourself like a pretzel to fit in an institution or in a relationship that doesn't value what you bring to the table. Uh, I remember getting a job offered by Procter & Gamble. I was doing a lot of diversity work with uh, folks uh, and uh, you know, my partner at the time worked for Procter and Gamble, and we would go to Italy, and we started. We had an olive oil tasting room right down the block, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, and uh, they were they needed a diversity and inclusion person, and and uh, you know, it's sort of like I would not last two seconds at a Procter and Gamble corporation. Why on earth would I apply for that job? You know what I mean? So I had I have to be willing to to find the spots where people are going to value what I have to bring and, uh, and that I don't have to deny who I am and what I believe. Uh, and I'm really good at advocating for other people. I can put on a great three-piece suit and sound great, uh, but know that I'm an activist at heart. I grew up in Cuba during the Cuban Revolution, uh, so I have all that in my, in my blood. Um, I, uh, I was one of the first thousand pioneers who, anybody who had an A or a B uh, would go to school until noon and then we would teach farm workers and uh, sugarcane workers and factory workers and cigar makers how to read and write uh, under the 100% literacy campaign. So there was a lot of human rights and a lot of issues with Cuba. I'm not pro-Castro, I'm not pro-communist, although my family, my father would introduce me as, this is our daughter Marta. We brought her all the way to the United States so she can get a doctorate in socialism. <laughs> <laughs> because to him, you know, social work and, you know, social services and all that was you know, taboo. So uh, I, I got revolution in my veins. I got uh, feminism in my veins. I got, uh, you know, an incredible amount of uh, strength from the women who left veils and machista, uh, you know, cultures and, you know, went with their bearded lovers to the mountains uh, to fight for what we all thought was a great thing. Um, so you know, I, I've lived, I've had the privilege of living a very long time and uh, made it to two pandemics, AIDS and COVID. And, uh, you know, navigating worlds of queerness, navigating worlds of social injustice, navigating immigration, uh, you know, navigating this incredibly regressive time uh, in our country. Um, 
and finding joy and good people and things to celebrate no matter how dark it looks. Thank you so much. You're welcome. My It's honor. A privilege. Thank you. Uh -huh. Thanks a lot. <laughs>